And suddenly we hear this shout from the other dome. And I was there with a fellow named Rick Hill, another astronomer from Arizona. We're looking at each other. So we run down the stairs from our dome, run across the, the roof of the Papal Palace, run up the stairs to the other dome. And there are two amateurs, an Italian and a German, and they're dancing because what they had been doing was just taking images of Jupiter with this little CCD camera. And as they were imaging Jupiter, suddenly rotating into view was a ginormous black spot. I mean, we're talking about a spot that was bigger than planet Earth. And for all that we knew that this thing was going to hit, nobody knew that it was going to leave giant black spots like that. Guy Consolmagno, describing the hullabaloo he heard when the very first images were taken of an immense disturbance to Jupiter's atmosphere. A long-awaited comet had plunged into the giant's far side, and now the first evidence was rotating into view. It was July 1994, a dramatic moment in the history of astronomy. The comet, now defunct, was known as Shoemaker-Levy 9, and certain very clever earthlings who know stars and math and such had accurately calculated that the comet's trajectory would not only intersect with the orbit of Jupiter, but that these two heavenly objects would try to occupy the same spot at the same time. Not possible, you know. So scientists the world around were poised to verify their expectation that Jupiter would win. Yet these experts, ironically, were not the ones to capture the first images. They had trained their eyes to capture indirect evidence of the collision because, as I've mentioned, the comet was right on schedule to smash into Jupiter from behind, totally out of view from us humans. There could be no photos of a direct hit, so apparently the professionals planned to take none. Consul Magno is an American by birth, a research astronomer, and a physicist by profession, also a Jesuit brother who serves as director of the Vatican Observatory. A lot of people refer to Brother Guy as the Pope's astronomer. Brother Guy explains how he and others missed what amateurs at the Papal Observatory successfully caught. We were, of course, looking through the telescope, hoping we would see something with the naked eye, and we didn't see anything. We were very disappointed, but we were working at one of the two elderly telescopes here in Castel Gandolfo, telescopes dating from the 1930s, which mostly aren't used anymore, except we happen to be geographically in the right part of the world to have Jupiter overhead when the first piece of Shoemaker-Levy hit. So we had our big instrument on the big telescope, and there were a couple of amateurs using our refractor telescope, which is a lovely telescope, over in the next dome. You know, they were amateurs. They were advanced amateurs. They had this little gizmo that one guy had made, which was a homemade CCD camera. So we finished. We decided, eh, maybe we saw something, maybe we didn't. We'll have to look at the data that we recorded on a computer disk. And that's when they heard the ruckus and raced off to investigate. Down the stairs of their own observatory, across the roof of the 17th century papal palace called Castel Gandolfo. It's a beautiful old villa, high on a hill, it overlooks a crater lake on the outskirts of Rome. You gotta think things look just a little suspicious, with a couple of guys rushing across the roof, one of them actually named Guy. Two shadows running toward the source of those shouts ringing out into the night air. 
from the lofty silhouette of the second domed tower. And what did they discover up there? Well, it was those two aforementioned amateurs witnessing and imaging with their simple cameras the very first evidence of the comet's impact. A black spot on Jupiter the size of Earth. In a moment like that, who wouldn't shout or jump for joy? The euphoria infected Guy Consolmagno. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. So these were the first people in the world to see this giant black spot. It was jaw-dropping. It was the kind of thing that just made you want to dance because it was so unexpected. It was so unmistakable. It was so in your face. Ha-ha, you didn't trust me that it was going to happen, but here it was. Life is like that, I guess. You you see the wonders. Sometimes you go, you look at the sunset because you expect the sunset to occur and the sunset's marvelous. Sometimes you look away from the sunset and you see instead of the glorious reds and greens of, of the sun going down, you see the shadow of the earth maybe going up a mountain in the opposite direction. And you see what's sometimes called uh, the band of Venus. And you go, oh my goodness. The earth is turning. I can see the shadow of the earth. I can see it in the clouds. I can see it on the mountains. And there's a subtle beauty there that I would never have noticed if I hadn't looked in the wrong direction. A couple of days ago, I was looking at the word miracle and checking it out, its origins, and found that there are some etymologists who uh, push that in the direction of uh, it, it comes to some kind of really early word, Proto-Indo-European, I believe, for smile or laugh. Uh, dance would have been good too, I think. That's marvelous. I never knew that, but I can absolutely agree. A miracle is something that makes you smile. That's something that makes you laugh. It surprises you, but not just, you know, the way that an auto accident surprises you. Boy, I didn't see him coming across the lane. It surprises you in a way that attracts you to joy, to beauty, to love. I'll tell you what a miracle is not. A miracle is not some violation of the laws of physics. And the reason we know that's not what a miracle means is we had the word miracle long before we had any idea that physics had laws. Run that by me because I'm trying to follow. We had the word miracle before people were convinced that, say, uh, experiments could be repeated and, and that there would be consistency, that there would be unifying kinds of phenomena where it's not willy-nilly, it's not random. There are laws by which things behave. Yeah, well, remember how most people thought the universe worked before we had laws of physics, that uh, there were nature gods. If, you know, you saw a lightning bolt, it was because the god of nature threw the lightning bolt. And that explained everything you saw. If you wanted an explanation that is capable of explaining everything you see, without question, believing in nature gods would do it. But if you decide you're not going to believe in nature gods because you believe in one god, you know, the way the Jews did, the way the early Christians and the, the, the Muslims did, then suddenly you've opened up the realm to say, okay, if there aren't nature gods throwing lightning bolts, then what is there? Now, in the time of the scientific revolution, people realized that you could do more than just come up with word statements for what's going on. You could actually describe it using the language of mathematics. And that was a big breakthrough. That was actually quite controversial for, for many years. 
But then, once, especially with Isaac Newton, you had these equations which seemed to describe and predict what ought to happen, then the deists of that era, the deists that said that, well, God made the universe and set the laws in motion and wound up the watch and then walked away. And they said, well, a miracle is anything where God interferes with the mechanism and does something different. The trouble was they started using the bits of the mechanism they didn't understand to say, oh, that must be God. And then when someone else comes along and says, no, actually I can explain how that works, then all their reasons for believing in God went away, one by one by one. We call this the God of the gaps. So you say, oh, I don't know how gravity works. God must make it. Oh, actually, we do know how gravity works. Okay, but I don't know why the planets don't perturb each other. Well, actually, they do perturb each other, but not so much that you can notice it until you look carefully. Oh, and, and every step along the way when you say, well, I don't understand, therefore it must have been God. If that's the God you're trying to believe in, that's going back to being the God who throws lightning bolts. That's, you're looking for that kind of miracle. But the kind of God that I want to believe in the kind of God that I see in Scripture is not the God who throws lightning bolts and not a God who makes himself known by violating laws of physics. That's not the God I believe in. And those aren't the kinds of miracles that I'm talking about. Instead, to me, a miracle is a jolt out of my day-to-day -day that makes me aware of the presence of God. And that can't help but make you smile. That can't help but make you laugh, make you dance. So here's what I'm hearing Brother Guy say. If miracles are only those kinds of things that cannot be explained by science, then every time somebody unravels a scientific riddle, this whittles away at evidence of God, and gradually God erodes. That would be a weak God, I kind of think, if he can be explained away. That's a Wizard of Oz who gets exposed maybe by a little dog pulling the curtain back. And I have to confess, I think I stand right with Brother Guy on this. I would rather be surprised by joy, by wonder, at a phenomenon that science can explain or even predict than be the recipient of one of those thunderbolts from Zeus. A comet careening predictably toward Jupiter— at a very safe remove from Earth, of course. That's more my style. And if it so happens that rank amateurs capture the very first images of this phenomenon, why should that be of any concern? I'm totally okay by that. And I think Brother Guy is too. And neither of us thinks it diminishes God. We're going to hear more from the Pope's astronomer a little bit later. Meanwhile, let's take a look at another incredible phenomenon of the night sky. It's surely one that has made a lot of people smile, laugh, or maybe even dance. Like Brother Guy, Tom Kurz is an astronomer. But Tom's overriding passion has turned him into an aurora hunter. He will travel just about anywhere to see the northern lights. They have been a magnet for him from boyhood. Tom Kurz caught the aurora bug from his dad, the pilot. And his dad got it from the cockpit of his fighter jet. So flying out at night, uh, and particularly uh, out over the Arctic or subarctic at the right time of year, there was an opportunity to experience a really magical sky, the likes of which 
mainland people in Scotland wouldn't see very often. So he would tell me these stories and that fed my imagination as a kid who always had an affinity for the night sky. But, well, it was, it was like mythology. He would explain, for example, seeing something like the Northern Lights uh, from the cockpit of the Jaguar. And as a kid who'd only barely glimpsed the Northern Lights from the beaches of Scotland, you know, just over the horizon, that was the kind of thing that really got my mind racing. I became absolutely obsessed with the concept of these other skies that you could visit and see. Stargazing often seems to be a solitary sport. Just think of that stereotype, that lone astronomer keeping a quiet vigil on a dark night with only a telescope for a partner. But both Brother Guy's story of collective celebration and Tom's story of a bond with his father over things up in the sky... Well, clearly, there's got to be a degree of sociality in all of this. Yeah, the sky is a unifying force the way that I see it. It's not just something that connects us around the world, but it, it quite literally connects us over generations of time because it's relatively unchanging. Whereas humans have changed a great deal, we have all shared the same sky for thousands of years. We can really imagine standing outside with our very same own ancestors but a thousand years ago and just looking at the same stars with pretty similar patterns in mind in our heads. There's a huge community and yet it's a community that feels extremely tight-knit around the world. It's a borderless community. We don't really have national stargazing projects and everyone I've ever met around the world who is interested in astronomy, they have exactly the same charisma and energy and excitement and willingness to talk openly about their experiences. So um, in those terms, I think stargazing is an extremely social hobby. And well, if I could have my way, it would be more of a uh, global culture that, that everybody gets a chance to engage with at some point in their life. So if we were lucky enough to be hanging out with such a community on some winter night, maybe out on Tom's childhood beach in Scotland, just what might we hope to see? The motions are, are amazing. Yeah, the still pictures really don't do justice to the Northern Lights. They're really colorful, of course, and fabulous to look at. But they are really just capturing a, a tiny moment of a grand production. And uh, likewise, a single stage photo of the Lion King can be dramatic to look at, but you're not going to feel the same as being there in Broadway or the West End if you're in London and, and seeing the stage show yourself and hearing the music. Recording a video of the Northern Lights in real time requires an extremely sensitive, uh, high-performance, low-light camera. But we're now living in the age where you can pick one up from your local camera store. So now, if you can if you go into YouTube and type Northern Lights real time, you'll find ample footage taken by people who live there who are really good videographers and, and also just tourists who are having a mind-blowing experience. There's often an audio track to accompany that with lots of oohs and ahs. And uh, you can see how the lights move in a variety of different ways. They can be very placid. They can be a, an arc on the horizon. Um, I remember ex 
try to show my mum the northern lights once in Iceland and she thought it was a cloud and it did look like a cloud you know it looked to me like the northern lights but that was only because I had the benefit of of experience uh, she took a while to it took a while for her to identify any movement they were so slow but at other times the lights can be moving extremely rapidly it all, it's almost violent the uh, the speed with which they move and the kind of aggression that they dance around the sky um, but it it never feels you know scary. It's it's always kind of wonderful and beautiful, like watching a a, a bird uh, performing a dance, you know, like a mating ritual or something. Something that you can't really take your eyes off, but you don't feel scared to look at it. Um, so it can be everything in between, and it can be overhead. It can be on the horizon. There can be sudden changes that come and go and last just a minute or so, and there can be storms that that last 45 minutes and blanket the sky um, and it's, an, it's a sensory overload. So there's every kind of experience to be had. It's probably a big part of the draw and why people get so addicted as well is just the, the thought that, well, the next time you go, you might see something even better. There's always that kind of promise that uh, there could be more to what you're seeing. At some point, after you've witnessed the beauty of an aurora, even if just in a YouTube video, the next step might be to glean some understanding of the laws of physics that make this dancing energy visible. Are these the kinds of laws that hold steady, that apply no matter where you are? I mean, would an alien on some other planet, maybe in our own solar system or even way out in some remote galaxy, would this alien ever get to experience an aurora? Tom Kerr's again. So actually any world with a magnetic field and a sufficiently strong uh, or sufficiently thick atmosphere, I should say, will scoop up some of this material from the sun and generate its own auroral light. But here on the Earth is where we have our first experience and really the only experience we can have in person of this phenomenon. Fortunately, the Earth is one of those planets that produces a nice strong auroral emission, particularly in the visible part of the spectrum, the colours of light that we can see. And that's just all down to the particular ingredients of our atmosphere and the particular energy with which these solar particles strike it. And you can think about the Northern Lights as really just being a big plasma ball. If you've ever had a plasma ball, then you lived through the 80s. They were great, and you can still buy them today. They're just a plastic ball that contains some gases, usually neon and argon, uh, with an electrode at the centre, something that, that generates an electrical current. And uh, you plug them in and the electrical current tries to find its way out of the ball. And as it does so, those moving particles that carry energy, what we call electricity, they impart some of that energy onto the gas and the gas glows. And we see these arcs of light inside the ball. So in much the same way, the northern lights are generated, albeit on a much grander scale. Um, and I'm glad they are generated because they are a visible reminder of this uh, unbroken connection between the sun and the earth. We tend to think of the sun as just, like you say, it's our star. It's very far away. It's, it's, it's 90, over 90 million miles away. And so in theory, we shouldn't, it shouldn't be reaching us in any way except for the heat and light. But in fact, it is physically touching our planet through this stream of particles that scientists call the solar wind. And the light that we see, well, it's like the foam of a wave crashing. The wave itself might be invisible. If you're looking at the ocean at night, the, the waves might be too dark to be seen, but the bright foam will pick up the highlights. And the northern lights are just like that, the foam of this invisible wave of material striking the Earth's atmosphere. 
That's a fantastic analogy. I, I, I guess you've probably used that before. Yes. <laughs> it's it's very good. Trying to think about it. Well, it's, it's really, I do want people to understand, of course, the, as much as they want to, the intricate scientific mechanisms at work. And luckily, as with most things in astronomy, there are kind of scales of, of looking at things. So we can look at things in this large scale, the way we've just talked about it. And then if you want to, you can look at things at gradually smaller and smaller scales. You can look at the individual types of atoms. You can look at the interesting types of currents that form in the Earth's magnetic field. You can look at the storm activity on the sun. And then, as you say, if you really want to go deep, and this is what the world's top experts are doing, you can start looking inside the sun, or you can start putting balloons into the upper atmosphere uh, to study interactions between the sun and the Earth. And it's wonderful that that research is still ongoing today. But I think, in a sense, we feel secure that the broad facts about how the Northern Lights are formed are not going to change anytime soon. So we've got a pretty good top level understanding. And that's all you really need to really appreciate that, that sense that space is reaching out to you and it's touching our planet. Remember when I said I prefer the kind of God unlike Zeus, who maybe works a miracle by well, sending a comet to strike somebody else's planet, not mine, and then science can understand and predict it all? Well, as we're talking about auroras and radiation streaming down toward Earth, there's got to be a dangerous downside. We have to talk about that. Wonder and awe come in connection with reverence. Reverence is a word that at its root is the concept of fear. And I don't want to rain on the parade of joy and wonder. However, if we're going to talk about auroras, we just got to say it. These displays reveal not only natural beauty, but also they come with immense power and even violent force. It was September of 1859 when an English astronomer called Richard Carrington, who happened to be studying the sun that day, noticed a bright flash of light um, on the sun. It was uh, close to a, a rather familiar at the time, but still unknown object called a sunspot, a dark patch on the face of the sun. And Carrington saw actually not just one, but two of these flashes. And unbeknown to him at the time, he became the first person in history to witness what we call a solar flare, which is a very, very high energy event on the what we can think of as the surface of the sun. Carrington noted these solar flares in his observations, but what he didn't know until a little bit later was that the following day, actually about 18 hours later, a huge auroral storm erupted around the world. And in fact, the northern lights were witnessed in Hawaii. So that was pretty far south for the time. It was probably the largest auroral storm in recorded history. Quietly, I think most northern lights chasers like myself kind of wish something like that would happen again. It would be extraordinary to see the northern lights from London, where I live, for example, or from Florida, where I am right now, or from Hawaii, if I happen to be fortunate enough to be on holiday. So that was a really extraordinary event, but it came with a great deal of unknown risk. At the time, the ionization of the Earth's upper atmosphere meant that telegraph transmissions could be intercepted all over the world. They were bouncing off the upper part of the Earth's atmosphere with very high efficiency. And that was kind of weird. You know, people had not experienced anything like that. Now, as it happens, the huge radiation and, and particle release from the sun 
didn't cause any harm to humans. That same atmosphere and magnetic field that we talked about that give us the northern lights are also our barrier to space. They protect us from the harms of space. And there is a great deal of harmful radiation up there. But if uh, anybody had been traveling to the moon in a very thin tin can in 1859, they probably would have received a lethal dose of radiation from that event. And indeed, when astronauts did travel to the moon in the late 60s and early 70s, it was more by luck than judgment that a solar event like that didn't occur at the time. They did take quite a big risk to make those journeys and just sort of had to hope that nothing like that would happen. There was no indication it would, but of course, sometimes these things do just happen without warning. Like an earthquake or a volcano blowing its top. Noah, according to the old story, was tipped off that something was going to go very wrong in the natural world. This is the flood story, of course. After rescue by Ark came that first rainbow. It was kind of like an olive branch from God. I'm muddling the story because there's an olive, an actual olive branch in this story. But I want to get a little poetic with this here for just a moment, if you'll indulge me. A colorful aurora borrows from the light spectrum as does a rainbow. So you could almost think of these very safe, docile, auroral displays as welcome messages from Earth that it has its shields up for us, that the electromagnetic fields are protecting us from harmful radiation. Now, I'm going to have to concede right quick here. If we did have another 1859-like Carrington event, and given how completely reliant we are today on the very fragile infrastructure of our electrical grids, well, then the results could be devastating. As I say, we do live in an age where we're monitoring, and it's only now looking back at things like the 1859 storm, the Carrington event, as it's come to be known, that we can think about our future in that way. So while I do wish to see northern lights all over the world, I wouldn't wish for the harmful consequences that might follow. I'm hoping and I'm optimistic that when such a thing does happen again, and it is a matter of when, that we will be ready and we'll be able to not only enjoy it, but study it and learn a great deal at the same time. And after all our studying and learning, I rather suspect we would indulge in telling stories about the event. We would pass down what we had witnessed with our own eyes. That's exactly how people behaved in primitive times. Our stories would, of course, be shaped by our scientific understanding, but Part of Tom's love affair with auroras includes how ancient eyewitnesses spun their yarns. They had to transform their wonder-filled memories into legends. I often tell people that astronomy is the oldest natural science, and there will probably be some scientists that argue about it and some anthropologists and historians, but it really is the, the first great mystery of our exploration of the natural world, because even 50 to 100,000 years ago, our nomadic ancestors could climb a mountain if they wanted to, they could cross a river, they could reach these horizons and touch things. But the sky has always been out of reach. And even now, it is the most recent uh, frontier in our exploration of the natural world. As we move into this new space age, this privatized, accelerated space age of companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin taking private citizens to space and supergiant telescopes being built. And so 
I don't want us to lose sight of that ancient exploration of the sky. And luckily, it's encoded into the way that we talk about the sky. We still refer to the constellations, and these are ancient stories. Most of them have a some sort of mythological story which uh, teaches something about our shared history. With the Northern Lights in particular, the diversity of legend uh, is predictable because the Northern Lights are so elusive and yet for some communities they're so ordinary. And so if you lived under the Northern Lights and you saw them for months and months of the year, for example, if you were from Lapland, if you were a, or a Sami, uh, if you were part of a Sami tribe, you would have experienced the lights all the time. There would be a familiarity, you would expect them, they wouldn't shock you or surprise you. Uh, you would perhaps have stories that were scary. You might tell children stories about the lights to scare them. But there are practical reasons that these stories can exist. For example, you might not want children running around at night um, going out into the wilderness. So you might tell them, well, you know, if the northern lights catch you, they'll take you up into the sky and you'll never be seen again. And of course, we sort of do tell stories like this today. My dad used to tell me that if I watched too much TV, my eyes would go square. And I believed it. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> of course, it doesn't make much sense now, um, but it worked. You know, it helped me to limit my screen time as a, as a kid. I think that uh, if you were in Greece, then you'd have a very different perspective because the Northern Lights would be seen so infrequently there that you could perhaps go several generations without a sighting. So that really would be local mythology. And those would be eyewitness accounts that just became hard to believe within a few decades. So you would also see something very different. You'd see perhaps red northern lights on the horizon. And the color of those lights might change your perception. You might think that they were dangerous or a bad omen. There's a long history of the northern lights being omens preceding great tragedies or battles across the Mediterranean and the surrounding region. And we don't really find that in Scandinavian countries where views of the northern lights are generally quite benign or they are connected to folklore of ghost stories and things like that. When our predecessors crafted legends about auroras, those stories came down to us from long ago. And this is not unlike light coming from a distant star. Work with me here. The time required for light to reach Earth from, oh, let's say, the red giant star Arcturus, 36 and a half years. So maybe a Greek or Inuit legend about the northern lights takes a lot longer than that to reach us. The point here is that time and distance often leave us feeling disconnected. I'm disconnected from auroras because I've never seen one. So visiting with Tom Kurz, I wanted to use him as my personal proxy, and I pressed him for his firsthand account of his feelings and thoughts and emotions. He talks about Zen-like experiences when people fully inhabit the present moment and become particularly mindful. Ever hear about mindfulness? Mindfulness is about that direct experience. It's about sensing what's happening in the moment. Your mind is, is not lingering on how things will be. Uh, you're not retelling stories from the past. You're not remembering things. And there's, by definition, no real pain or even pleasure for that matter. But there is a sort of sense of calm and, and contentment uh, with being in the present moment and just feeling everything around you that's real and tangible in some way. And there are ways to, uh, to enhance that when it comes to astronomy. You can, you can think actively about what it is you're seeing. You can look at a star and you can appreciate it as a 
completely alien point of light with no context. But if you think about the starlight reaching you over deep time, then that can, in my view, enhance the experience. So likewise with the lights, if you've had your first experience and you've been completely bowled over and it was completely mesmerizing and inexplicable and you can't even tell your friends what happened, well, the next time you go out, you can perhaps have a talk first about how the lights emerge and what to look for and some of the subtleties that we understand from the science of the lights. And then on the third night, you could perhaps attend a talk about some of the local legends of the lights and how those legends evolved from people's experiences. And that will make you feel more connected to that local community, but also appreciate the experience in a different way. So uh, mindfulness, I think, is a, is, a, is a brilliant tool for enhancing our enjoyment and understanding of the things that, that bring us uh, calm and expand our minds in the first place. And we can always enhance it as long as we're careful not to, uh, not to dwell on things in the past or the future. And when you're looking at the sky, if it's arresting enough, it's one of the best ways to bring yourself into the present. I mean, this is a story I've told before and I, I don't want to labor it like some cheap joke, but the first time I saw the Northern Lights in Iceland, I was, I was so taken by the view that I actually walked straight into a stream, which was frozen, incidentally, so it was extremely cold. And I put one foot through the ice and just walked into the stream. I was just walking forward idly with my eyes in the sky, probably just drawn forward to get away from a crowd of people or something. And uh, obviously, putting your foot into a frozen stream is a good way to bring yourself back to earth very quickly. Um, but within a few minutes, my foot had dried off and I was back to the sky again. And it was very hard to think about the science that I knew. It was equally difficult to think about the stories. But after the experience, I found that it was easier to, with what I had in my memory, to start to think about the uh, what was really happening, the material coming from the sun. We can go into as much granular detail on that as you like. But also think about what people must have felt and experienced in the distant past seeing something like that. I couldn't help feeling that, uh, particularly with the Northern Lights, more so than anything else in the sky, uh, it really seems to be alive. It has a genuine character and the motion is extremely visually arresting and enticing and seductive. There's something about it that you just can't help but feel that it's quite creaturely. It doesn't feel like a clockwork mechanism like other things in the sky do. Um, and so for that reason, seeing the Northern Lights for me was like having a present moment conversation. And at the same time, it was like dreaming when you're awake. It was, it was almost impossible to process. It was only afterwards, the day after, and in talking to some of the other people that had had this experience with me that I could start to process it and and evaluate it through these different lenses. And then, of course, subsequently, over 10 years later, perhaps to some extent, the, uh, the mystery has, has gone, but none of the magic is lost. I think you can see the Northern Lights again and again, and it will, it will almost never tire of it. It's, it's probably more so than anything else in the sky uh, is, is endlessly interesting to look at. On the very day I met my wife, it so happens I also saw for the very first time in my life a common blue jay. We don't have them out here west where I live. I was in the passenger seat of her car. She was driving very fortunately. She was driving slowly because I was seized with intense 
wonder. I was just so in the moment, I actually stepped out of the moving car to chase the bird. I didn't want it to fly away. Because in my personal experience, it was a very rare thing. You can laugh if you want, but maybe this was a little bit like Tom stepping mindlessly or mindfully into a frozen stream in Iceland. Seriously, I'm not being facetious. Because I hope you too have had those moments of being completely ambushed and then caught up in something just as compelling. The state of being we call mindfulness, I don't think it's done any justice with cheap words like magical or captivating. And this state of being fully present in the face of natural miracles, it's something we share, as Tom has already made very clear, with our predecessors on planet Earth, which brings us to Galileo. I think everyone that can get a small telescope to start them off really is walking in the footsteps of Galileo in a very meaningful way. And other pioneers too. They all saw the planets and the, and the craters on the moon for the first time in detail that no one else could even have conceived of before that time. But really, the experience can't be written up. If you're looking through a telescope and you see Jupiter or Saturn or even Neptune, which is really just a blue star, even in the telescope, you will feel something that you can't really express on the page, which is that sensation of looking at a real world across this unimaginable gulf of space. And I think that uh, it's almost impossible to prevent people from having that experience, which I think is something Galileo, Johannes Kepler and others must have been feeling very strongly. So I think that uh, there is an opportunity to experience something so similar that if you could reach back into time and talk to them about it, you'd find yourself expressing it in very similar terms. I don't think anything has been eroded in that regard, be it by light pollution or even by our extraordinary knowledge of these things. Most children have already seen pictures of the planets in books before they will have the opportunity to see them through a telescope, but it's still an extraordinary sensation to know that what you're looking at is real. Actually, about, uh, well, over 10 years ago now, I was working for a few weeks in Namibia, in Southern Africa, and I was working at a lodge with a large observatory, and the guests that would come to the lodge, many of them were affluent, middle-aged people from the UK and parts of Europe. But most of them had never looked through a telescope before, which shocked me. There was one lady who came along and she saw Saturn through a telescope. And at first, for about 10 minutes, she refused to believe that it was real. The next 10 minutes were very quiet and contemplative as she came to accept that it was real. And the hour that followed was her essentially struggling to compose herself as she kept coming breaking down in tears again and again over the concept of how remarkable it was that with a, a tube with a bit of glass at the front that she could basically travel in her mind to this other world and see it uh, as it really was. And I just thought, yeah, that's an experience I think everybody needs to have at some point in their life. Um, because I could see decades of, of living on Earth and just imagining the planets were elsewhere just suddenly coming apart. And it was a, a real transformative moment. And here, I just have to tell you, binoculars, they're great too. They help me study birds, mountains, trees. They work wonders. Uh, but they only work wonders if I can keep myself from thinking of birds or stars or other miracles as mundane or common or ordinary. You can't do that. Brother Guy Consolmagno, the Pope's astronomer, he's the guy we began with. 
He too was in Africa once with a telescope, had a very similar experience to Tom's. We're going to hear that. I need to be clear, I never heard Tom use the word miracle. He and I never talked about belief in God. But Africa is familiar footing to both of these gentlemen. Guy's Africa story is about a moment that shook him, as he says, out of complacency. Tom was in Namibia with his telescope. Guy in Kenya, also sharing a telescope with strangers. Uh, you were talking before about people who, you know, have lost sight of the wonder. I was that person. I was 30 years old. I was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT. And, you know, and that's pretty good, MIT. That's the big leagues. A postdoctoral fellow meant that I was a utility infielder. But still, I was in the big leagues. I was doing science and getting to know the names of people who are going to be important someday. But 30 years old, and I had lost the desire to do the science. I'd walk into work every day wondering, why am I doing this? Do I really want to do this? You know, can I find something more exciting to do today? And I'd lie in bed at night staring at the ceiling wondering, why am I worried about, you know, Jupiter and clouds and, and impacts when there's people starving in the world? And so I had this experience of recognizing I needed to jolt myself out of the rut that I was in. And I did that the most dramatic way I could. I quit my job, I quit science, and I went and joined the US Peace Corps. And I said, look, send me someplace where I can do some good, because I don't think I'm doing any good here. They sent me to Kenya. They had me teaching first in high school and then eventually at the university teaching astrophysics, just like I you know, could have been doing back in America. But when I went up country with you know, a handful of slides, remember slides and slide projectors, to show people pictures that NASA had taken of the planets. And, and I brought a little telescope so people could look at Jupiter for themselves. The Africans reminded me of that joy, of that wonder of why we're doing the astronomy. Because they would look through the telescope and see the craters on the moon and see the moons of Jupiter and, and see the rings of Saturn. Have you ever seen the rings of Saturn? Have you ever seen them through a little telescope? Yes, I have. Uh, we have some have, wonderful night sky in southern Utah. And, I, and we go yeah. down to Bryce Canyon National Park, and they have an astronomical festival every summer. Yes, I have. Okay. Now, here's the question. Have you ever seen the rings of Saturn and not gone, oh, wow? I don't care how many times you see them. Every time you see them, well, you well, still this go, is, This is oh, the fear wow. I have. I have this genuine fear that we normalize true miracles, that things become mundane to us, that we grow inured to things that we've successfully explained and can see. That's, that's the premise of our show, that we want to find out yeah. about the experience of wonder and, and what facilitates it rather than quashing it or repressing well, here's, it. Well, here's my answer then, and this was my African experience, because it was showing them to other people that reignited it in me. It was teaching other people what you could see in a small telescope that made me start looking through a small telescope again. Um, you mentioned the books. The one that actually I'm most proud of was with my friend Dan Davis. It's called Turn Left at Orion, and it's about what to look for in a small telescope. And I'm not saying that to, you know, to advertise it in your show. It sold 180,000 copies. So it's, you know, it's found an audience. There are people out there who are now excited about the sky thanks to Dan telling me what to look for in my little telescope in Africa. But there's also a religious side to it, too, because as I'm getting excited watching these other people get excited, I'm reminded of the phrase from Scripture, man does not live by bread alone. 
You know, I had a really clever cat in the days when I lived in Africa, but my cat never wanted to look through a telescope. <laughs> human beings look through a telescope. This is what makes us human. This is the part of us that needs to be constantly fed. And when you become inured to it, that's the time that you have to start sharing it with other people. You don't do it alone. You do it around other folks. Have you met people who have given up on asking questions, who, who wouldn't see the Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet or some other uh, sidereal phenomenon up, way up high and, and even care to ask questions about it? You do, and you find that in every walk of life. You know, there's the old uh, Simon and Garfunkel song, The Boxer, where Paul Simon writes, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. It is so tempting. Once you've done the hard work and found your little corner of science, and you've got a little experiment that you can do better than anyone else, it's real tempting to just keep doing that experiment because you know you're going to get an answer. And it's scary to try something new because the odds are pretty good that, you know, it's like baseball. If you, if you get one out of three as a hit, that's amazing, which means you're going to whiff two times out of three. That faith in your ability to still be able to do science, even if you get it wrong, that recognition that science isn't about the answer, it's coming up with the really fun questions. That's a hard thing for people to accept. That's a hard people thing for people to accept in any phase of their life, whether it's, you know, trying to maintain a relationship with your spouse, trying to maintain a relationship with God. It's really easy to fall into the rut of what seems to have worked all along and to be afraid to try something new. If you think you already have it solved and sussed and you know everything, then you've lost your sense of wonder. The trouble is, I think, you know, sometimes it's the way we teach science. If you're teaching high school science to a bunch of kids, they pass the course if they can reproduce the answers in the back of the book. But that's not science. That's, you know, learning to play the scales, which is different from learning how to play a piece of music. Those are the skills you need to be able to play the music. Those are the skills you're going to have to master to be able to then say, how do I find a new problem and take it apart and see the pieces and be amazed at how beautifully it all fits together? But it all comes from looking at stuff you don't know. And that's also got to be true of your faith. If you think you've got God figured out, uh, then that's probably not the real God that you're dealing with. That's a God of your own making, of your own imagination. And rather than, you know, being in the image of God, you've made God in the image of you, which is kind of backwards. Uh, Pope Benedict had a marvelous phrase. He said, light pollution is the perfect symbol of human sinfulness, blotting out God's lights with our own light. But if we could only learn to, you know, tone down the lights in cities so we could see the stars, you could be amazed by them. And they're glorious and they're beautiful and... A little kid can enjoy them and an old man can enjoy them. That's great. If you know them because you've seen them all your life and you now recognize that's the pattern of stars that I call Orion, then you know them even better because you know their name, you know their history. You remember when your dad showed them to you. You remember when you showed it to, you know, your little nephew. These sorts of things add a layer of, of joy to what's already a beautiful sky. Now, if you add to that the layer of science, that not only is Orion fun, and the name Orion connects me to my ancestors, you know, the Romans and the Greeks, 
who had stories when they looked at those stars. Emily Dickinson wrote this horrible poem. I really hate it. It's, you know, Arcturus <laughs> is his other name. I'd rather call him Star. How terrible of astronomers to go and interfere. And no, no, no. I want to know the names of my friends. I don't want to just say, hey, boy, you know, hey, dog. No. All right. So you can see how there's this layer upon layer upon layer of deeper engagement with the sky. The final engagement is to recognize in the beauty of the stars and the beauty of the science that explains why the stars are there and the amazing fact that we have the gifts to at least a little bit understand of what's going on. All of those are gifts of a God who created this universe, did it in the light so we can all follow what happened, and at every step of the way said, this is good. And not only that, but on the seventh day of creation said, hey, take some time off from everything else you're doing and look at the darn stars. That's what I put them there for. And think about things more than what am I going to have for lunch today? That is the bridge that pulls all of creation from God, the creator, to me and the, the little kid who's still alive inside of me looking at those stars and going, oh, wow. Uh, there's another scripture that has always been uh, important to me. It's Old Testament again. It comes from Psalm 8. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, I think is the way it goes. Uh, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Stars kind of put us in our, in our place, don't they? They do. Because if you look at that verse, it shocks you, first of all, that, hey, back in the old days, they knew how big the universe was. That's not something modern science told us. They knew that then. They had the same fear of the immensity of the universe. And what they have seen is that our place is not being this dinky spot in a giant universe, but rather that God has raised us to be little less than angels. You know, the next line of that, that psalm. That, that sense of finding your place is a, a common human hunger. We want to know who we are. We want to know, you know whether it's using astrology or, or rolling dice or any of those other uh, psychological games that you can play that are going to say, oh, well, I'm a this kind, you know, I'm an ENTP, and therefore we, we, we're desperate to know ourselves because we never will know ourselves. We certainly will never know ourselves the way that God knows us. And so the shock of Psalm 8 is, first of all, that the psalmist knew how big the universe was. But the psalmist also knew that in spite of us being one of seven billion people on one of a hundred billion planets around a hundred billion stars and a hundred billion galaxies, nonetheless, God knows me and knows you. God, that's what, that's what infinite means, that God's big enough to do that. And that's a hard thing to contemplate. But it's well worth writing a psalm about. Thanks to Brother Guy Consolmagno, Director of the Vatican Observatory and President of the Vatican Observatory Foundation. Very informally, he has styled the Pope's astronomer. And thanks also to Tom Kurz, an astronomer, an astrophotographer, an aurora hunter. He hosts a podcast called Star Signs, and he's author of Northern Lights, The Definitive Guide to Auroras. Our podcast, Constant Wonder, is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Marcus Smith. Thanks for listening.